You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 202, The Cherry Valley Massacre. When we last left the Mohawk Valley in episode 197, the Iroquois under Mohawk Captain Joseph Brandt and the Tory force, known as Butler's Rangers under New York Colonel John Butler, were wreaking havoc in upstate New York. A series of raids over the course of the spring and summer of 1778 had left the people living in the Mohawk Valley in daily fear for their lives. The attacks had culminated in the destruction of German flats in September 1778. Thanks to advance warning and good defensive forts, the Americans had avoided a massacre there, but the destruction of a sizable village called for a response. In the early spring, most of the raids had come from Quebec. Raiders would march into New York, attack isolated farms or small villages, then return before the militia could gather and respond in force. By the fall of 1778, the raiders were more permanently occupying territory in the Mohawk Valley. Joseph Brandt, the Mohawk chief, who was leading most of the attacks, had formed a base of operation in the villages of Unadilla and Anaquaga. Both of these were villages along the Susquehanna River. Before the war, both villages had mixed populations of settlers and various Indian tribes. Unadilla had originally been an Oneida village, but had become dominated by Mohawks in the years leading up to the war. Anaquaga had been a Seneca village. But, as I said, both villages had a mix, not only of various members of different Iroquois tribes, but also some Algonquin-speaking tribes, as well as settlers of European descent. By 1778, the Oneida and any Patriot settlers had fled the area. The two villages were friendly to Brant's warriors and Butler's rangers. They had provided shelter and supplies for the raiding armies. Following the destruction of German flats in September 1778, Patriot leaders were looking to respond in kind. New York Governor George Clinton and New York Militia General Abraham Tenbrook targeted Unadilla and Anaquaga. Governor Clinton sought permission to use Continental soldiers to perform the raid against these villages. Washington assigned Lieutenant Colonel William Butler. Now, William Butler was not any relation to the Loyalist John Butler. William had come to America with his family from Ireland years earlier and worked mostly as a fur trapper in what is today western Pennsylvania. He served as a militia officer before the war and took a commission with the 4th Pennsylvania Regiment shortly after the war began. Butler served in the Quebec campaign 
and later received distinction at the Battle of Monmouth. So Washington ordered Colonel Butler to raid the Indian bases in the Mohawk Valley to disrupt operations, but left the specifics of the campaign to the New York leaders. Butler marched his regiment for four days from Fort Schoharie to Inudilla in early October. His force of 267 men were primarily Continentals, with a few dozen New York militia joining them. When Butler's force reached Unadilla on October 6th, the warriors were away. Brant was leading a raid on an area near Kingston, New York, nearly a hundred miles away. The civilians at Unadilla received word of the approaching Continentals and fled into the woods or to Onaquaga. Butler found the town virtually abandoned. They did capture two Tories who said most of the population had fled to Onaquaga. Butler forced the man to act as a guide, reaching Onaquaga two days later on October 8th. Again, the local population had received word of their arrival and abandoned the town. The Continentals burned the town of about 40 homes. Butler noted in his report that these were well-built houses with glass windows and stone fireplaces. The men also killed or ran off any animals, destroyed grain warehouses, and anything else of value. They completed their work in a few hours, then began their march back to Unadilla. They reached Unadilla again on October 10th, still abandoned. The Continentals destroyed this town as well, burning all the buildings, including two mills, running off or killing the livestock, and destroying grain. Between the two villages, the raids destroyed the homes and winter food of about 700 residents. The only home they spared was the one that belonged to the captured Tory who had served as their guide. Rain and flooding slowed the expedition's return to Fort Skohari. By October 16th, the men had returned, though. Because the warriors were away and the civilians fled, there were no casualties. But the loss of the two villages was devastating to the local residents, many of whom were the families of Brant's warriors. Back in Quebec, General Friedrich Haldeman saw the series of raids conducted by Brant's Iroquois warriors and Butler's rangers as a great success in challenging American control of upstate New York. Late in the year, he approved a raid by British regulars into New York as well. To lead the raid, Haldeman selected Major Christopher Carleton. Major Carleton was the nephew of General Guy Carleton. Major Carleton's parents had died at sea when he was only four years old, and his uncle assisted with his education and upbringing. At age 12, his family purchased a commission for him in the regular army. After a few years, he purchased a lieutenancy and married Anne Howard, the sister of Maria Howard, who was the wife of Uncle Guy Carleton. Young Lieutenant Carleton had served in Quebec in the years after the French and Indian War. He spent several years living with the Mohawk and learning their language. Later, he would be transferred back to England and receive a promotion to captain. In 1776, Captain Carleton was part of the relief force sent to Quebec. He served as an aide on General Carleton's staff and also led several detachments of Mohawk warriors during the 1776 campaign that included the battle at Valcour Island. 
The following year, he purchased a major's commission in another regiment, where his other uncle, Thomas Carleton, was a lieutenant colonel. Major Carleton had remained with his regiment in Quebec when Burgoyne's army marched into New York, eventually leading to that army's surrender at Saratoga. With Burgoyne's army having become American prisoners, the reduced garrison remaining in Quebec feared another American attack. After General Carleton returned to England, the new commander, General Friedrich Haldimand, continued to take actions to make any such American invasion more difficult. In August, Haldimand deployed a force under Loyalist leader John Peters to destroy a road that the Americans were building in the Onion Valley, what is today northern Vermont, that might be used as part of an invasion of Canada. The British group was also tasked with the capture of Colonel Moses Hazen, a Continental officer who had lived in Quebec and who was clearing the road in the Onion Valley in hopes of encouraging another U.S. invasion of Quebec. The group of Loyalists and Indians, led by Peters, failed after the Indians became unhappy with his command and insisted on returning to Canada. The Peters raid therefore petered out after the destruction of only a few homes. Haldeman then tasked Major Carleton to lead the new raid. Knowing that Carleton had a good relationship with the Indians and regulars alike, Carleton took a group of about 350 regulars and loyalists, along with about 100 Indian warriors. His men boarded two ships, the Carleton, named after his uncle, and the Maria, named after his aunt, both of which had been part of the fleet during the Valcor campaign. Rounding out the fleet were two smaller gunboats and many even smaller bateaux. The fleet would sail up Lake Champlain, destroying any buildings and food stores that could be of benefit to an invading army. They would also round up prisoners who were potentially friendly to the Patriot cause. They departed on October 24th and arrived at Crown Point near the southern end of Lake Champlain on October 31st. Crown Point and Fort Ticonderoga were both abandoned ruins by this time. The Americans made no attempt to occupy them, nor did Carleton's force attempt to set up a garrison there. Instead, the raiders captured men they thought were friendly to the American cause and destroyed any buildings, food, or supplies which could be of benefit to an American force that wanted to invade Quebec. The men spent the next couple of weeks raiding farms and villages near the lake. At Moore's Mill, in what is today Shoreham, Vermont, the local militia fired on the raiders, leading to one of them being wounded, but the resistance only lasted a few minutes before the militia withdrew. The British force returned to the northern end of Lake Champlain on November 14th. Major Carleton's report to General Haldeman boasted that the raiders had destroyed enough supplies to have supported 12,000 men on a four-month campaign. The raiders destroyed a sawmill, a gristmill, 47 houses, and 48 barns. The men had captured 80 head of cattle, which they drove back to Quebec. They also took 79 prisoners who were suspected patriots. The Americans had suspected that there would be a fall raid, but it came so late that the Americans had already gone home for the winter. The only reported battle casualty was the one wounded soldier from Moore's Mill. Another man had been killed by a falling tree, and 17 were reported missing 
after an overloaded bateau sank on Lake Champlain. The raiders did not report any enemy casualties except for the captured prisoners. The Carlton raid was relatively uneventful because most American settlers who lived near Lake Champlain had long ago abandoned the area because of a fear of just such attacks. In upstate New York, however, the fighting only seemed to be growing. After the Americans destroyed Unadilla and Onaquaga, the raiders under Joseph Brandt returned to the area. They were not happy with the destruction and began considering where to take their revenge. Adjoining Brandt for the raid was another Tory militia officer named Walter Butler. Now, this is the third butler that I've mentioned recently, so I understand it's getting a little confusing. First, we had Colonel John Butler, who was the loyalist from upstate New York who had fled to Quebec and founded Butler's Rangers. I also introduced Lieutenant Colonel William Butler, who was no relation, who led the Continental Raid against Unadilla and Onaquaga. Leading this raid with Brant was Major Walter Butler. Walter was the son of the Tory Colonel John Butler. Walter was serving as an officer in his father's regiment of Butler's Rangers. In an earlier campaign, Walter had served with Joseph Brant under General Barry St. Ledger and had fought at the Battle of Oriskany. After the surrender of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga, Butler snuck back into New York from Quebec with the hopes of recruiting more Loyalists for Butler's Rangers. In late 1777, the Americans captured him at a tavern in German Flats and arrested him. He was convicted and sentenced to death. While awaiting execution of sentence, Butler spent most of the winter in an Albany jail. A butler had lived in Albany for a time before the war while he was studying law, so he had many friends and family in the area. After claiming to get sick, Butler's friends convinced local authorities to let him move to a nearby home under house arrest. There, someone could tend to his health. Authorities did not give him parole, as he was not considered an enemy soldier, but rather a convicted criminal. They posted an armed guard at his house. The owners of the home, as well as others, conspired to help him escape. One night, an attractive woman got the guard drunk until he passed out. Locals provided Butler with a horse and supplies to escape back to Niagara. Butler then joined up with Brandt for much of the raiding over the summer and fall of 1778. By some accounts, the two men did not really get along well. Brandt found Butler to be arrogant and ill-tempered, while Butler resented having to serve under Brandt. After the American assault on Unadilla and Onaquaga, the two British leaders agreed on a joint attack against Cherry Valley. Now, Cherry Valley was a small village about 50 miles from Unadilla. The Americans had built a fort there to protect the community. It was under the command of Colonel Ichabod Alden, with a regiment of about 300 Continental soldiers. Alden was a Massachusetts officer who had joined the fight shortly after Lexington in 1775. He was from Plymouth and a direct descendant of John Alden the Pilgrim. After the war had moved away from the Boston area, Colonel Alden remained in New England on fairly easy duty. In July 1778, General John Stark ordered Alden and his regiment to Cherry Valley, New York, in order to protect against Indian raids. 
The Continentals, as I said, had built a fort there, which was a log stockade surrounding blockhouses. They named it Fort Alden in honor of their commander. The regiment had been on alert for the summer and fall, but by November everyone was pretty well convinced that the fighting was over until spring. Alden had moved out of the fort and was staying in a nearby home as his winter quarters. Some of his other officers had also moved into nearby homes, some of them with their families. Meanwhile, Brant held a meeting of local tribes and included other Tories in a meeting to discuss the attack on Cherry Valley. At that meeting was at least one American spy. The commander at Fort Schuyler, General Robert Cochrane, received word that a joint native-Tory force had agreed to target Cherry Valley. He sent a note by messenger to Alden warning him of the attack. Alden received the note on November 8th. A rumors of an imminent attack spread around Cherry Valley. Local residents had put their valuables in the fort during the summer in anticipation of just such an attack, but had moved back to their homes for the winter. They now sought to return to the fort. Colonel Alden dismissed the warning note as an idle Indian rumor and did not bother to move anyone or anything back to the fort. Instead, he sent out several scouting parties on November 9th to look for any evidence of an attacking force. One of the scouting parties of about 10 men under Sergeant Adam Hunter moved south from Cherry Valley. Not terribly concerned about finding anything, they didn't make much effort to hide their presence. One morning, the camp awoke to find itself surrounded by enemy warriors. Sergeant Hunter immediately recognized one of the leaders. A year earlier, he had been on guard duty in Albany when a young woman got him drunk and allowed his prisoner to escape. Now Hunter was looking directly at that former prisoner, Major Walter Butler. Under interrogation, Hunter told Butler about the defenses at Cherry Valley and the fact that the officers were quartered in nearby homes. The attackers organized a plan to send in squads to take out the officers at the homes before launching their main attack on the fort. A group of Seneca warriors attacked the Wells House where Alden and his Lieutenant Colonel William Stacy were staying. Many of these warriors had just had their own homes destroyed at Onaquaga, so they were not in a particularly good mood. They swarmed the house, seeking to kill everyone inside. Colonel Alden fled the home and, according to some stories, was chased down by Joseph Brandt himself. Alden supposedly fired at Brandt, but his gun misfired. Brandt threw a tomahawk into Alden's head, killing him. Brandt then scalped the colonel and returned to the Wells' home. The warriors went on a killing spree in nearby homes. They slaughtered the Wells' family, where Alden and Stacy were staying, even though the Wellses were friends of Loyalist Colonel John Butler. The attackers killed the women and children, something that Brandt had struggled to prevent in earlier raids. The attackers failed to take the main garrison in Fort Alden, but the garrison inside had to watch the attackers as they went on a rampage against surrounding homes. In total, the attackers killed 14 soldiers and 30 civilians, mostly women and children. They also captured another 11 soldiers and 60 civilians, who were again mostly women and children. The raiders burned most of the town and withdrew with their prisoners. According to one story, the warriors prepared to dispatch the soldier prisoners that evening, 
preparing a stake for Lieutenant Colonel Stacy, where he might be tortured or burned alive. Butler seemed willing to allow this to continue. Stacy allegedly appealed as a fellow Freemason to Joseph Brandt for mercy. Brandt stepped in and ended the proceedings. Stacy would be taken back to Niagara as a prisoner. The attackers also released about half of their prisoners to return to Cherry Valley. Butler pointedly kept as prisoner a Mrs. Moore and a Mrs. Campbell, along with their children. Butler knew their husbands. John Moore was a delegate to the Provincial Congress from Tryon County, and Colonel Samuel Campbell served on the Tryon County Committee of Safety. You have to remember, Butler's own mother and some of his siblings were still being held as prisoners by the Patriots. Shortly after the attack, Butler sent a letter to General Philip Schuyler suggesting an exchange of the captured families for his own. He also noted that he had gone to great efforts to keep the Indians from killing these prisoners and was not sure how much longer he could continue to do so. That exchange, however, would not take place for another two years. Butler's Loyalist soldiers made their way back to Niagara with their prisoners. Although Mrs. Campbell's mother, an elderly lady, could not keep up and had to be tomahawked to death. At Fort Niagara, Butler allegedly had to prevent Brant's sister, Molly Brant, from turning over Colonel Stacy to an angry group of Indian warriors. Stacy would also spend years in captivity, not returning home until the war was essentially over in 1782. News of the Cherry Valley Massacre only inflamed tensions further. George Washington would order a campaign against the native tribes in upstate New York the following year in retaliation for these attacks. That, of course, will be the topic of a future episode. Next week, we head down to the Caribbean, where the British and French battle over the islands of Dominica and St. Lucia. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks, as always, to Patreon supporters at the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter. My gratitude to Mike Hager for his support at the Robert Morris Circle. Also, longtime Patreon supporters, Minuteman Matthew Vicklin and Sons of Liberty, Zane Taylor. I'm pleased to announce this week the opening of the American Revolution podcast storefront on TeePublic. 
you can finally get your American Revolution podcast merchandise. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, pillows, tote bags, and plenty of other items. I've created about a dozen different designs, all using classic American Revolution imagery. Some say American Revolution podcast. Some just have the imagery. So check it out, see what you like, and if you buy anything, it helps to support the podcast. If there are other designs you would like to see, just let me know, and I'll see what I can do. If people seem interested in buying American Revolution t-shirts, I will be adding to this collection as time goes on. I've added links to the t-shirt store on this week's blog episode and on my website at amrevpodcast.com. You should also just be able to go to tpublic.com, that's T-E-E, public.com, and search for American Revolution Podcast. I'm recording this ahead of time, and the store is supposed to go live on Sunday, May 23rd. I'm told that you should be able to get a 30% discount for the first three days that the new storefront is open, so that should be May 23rd through 25th. I'd love to get some feedback and suggestions for new designs, so feel free to reach out to me. You may also notice that I changed my music back again for this episode. For the last couple of episodes, I tried separating the main show and the after show with a short fife and drum beat. Listeners reported back that they were not happy with that, so I switched back to the fade-out music at both the end of the main show and after show. I took polls on both Patreon and Facebook, where listeners weighed in on this, and the people have spoken. So we're back to the old format for fade-out music again. I'm also firming up plans for a live meetup in Philadelphia. Right now, the plan is to meet in Washington Square in Old Town at 1.30 p.m. on Saturday, June 26th. Now, this is really going to be a casual thing. It's just get together and chat about the American Revolution. We may do a quick walk down Chestnut Street and talk about some of the historic buildings there, but that's really all I have planned. It's completely free. If you want to show up, that would be wonderful. Also, if anyone wants to meet for lunch before the event, I'm probably going to grab lunch downtown around noon, and I'd be happy to meet and talk with you over lunch as well. So pay attention to the podcast website at www.amrevpodcast.com for more details. And if you do plan to come, please let me know. If you want to grab lunch with me, let me know that too. I have my email address on the website, and I will be sure to keep you up to date on places and times via email if you sign up and say that you're coming or even that you might be coming. I think it would also be fun if people ordered American Revolution podcast t-shirts and we all showed up at the event with them. But that, of course, is just a suggestion. I want to also mention, before I get lots of angry emails complaining about my pronunciation of the village that Americans attacked in this episode, I pronounced it Onaquaga. I know that many popular pronunciations call the village Oquaga or Oguaga, making it a three-syllable word rather than the four syllables I used. I can only say that I looked up pronunciations and found different experts with all different answers. So, if you think I chose the wrong pronunciation, I'll admit that you're probably right. I went with my guess, but as you know, my pronunciation guesses are usually wrong. I have enough trouble pronouncing English words, let alone words in Iroquois. This week, we covered the Cherry Valley Massacre and a few of the events leading up to the massacre. 
This was all part of the ongoing fight in upstate New York for control of that area, and it was becoming a war of annihilation on both sides. The Cherry Valley Massacre tends to be remembered more than some of the other attacks in the region, not only because it led to the slaughter of women and children, which was usually more restrained, but also because it seems to be the final straw that led to the massive retaliation of the Sullivan Campaign the following year. The Iroquois were major players in the New York theater of the war throughout the Revolution. The Cherry Valley Massacre was one of their last major actions before the Continentals came down hard in that War of Annihilation. If you want to read more about the Revolution from the perspective of the Iroquois, you're going to like this week's book recommendation. It is The Iroquois in the American Revolution by Barbara Graymont. The book, which is about 300 pages, not counting notes and index, covers just the war and how it impacted the various tribes of the Iroquois Confederation. It looks at key individuals and events, trying to explain them both in detail and in a compelling way. The author, Barbara Graymont, was a professor at Nyack College for many years and a well-known, respected expert on the Iroquois people. She passed away in 2019. Now, admittedly, this book, which was first published in 1972, is a half-century out of print and very difficult to find. Prices on Amazon are obscenely high for the few copies that are available. However, if you don't mind an ebook, there is a copy of it available to borrow for free on archive.org. Although archive.org used to mostly just be books that were in the public domain and therefore much older, it's begun publishing a great many more books that are newer, that are still under copyright, and that are available for temporary borrowing. And this book is one of them. So I've included links to both the Amazon book and the book on archive.org, so you can choose whichever one you want. Both of them are on my website and blog. But I think this book, The Iroquois in the American Revolution, is really one of the best ones on this topic. If you want a broader look at the history of the region and more from the perspective of the colonists, you might want to try this week's online recommendation. It is called The Old New York Frontier by Francis Whitting Halsey. Now, this is an older book, first published in 1902 and therefore in the public domain. It looks at the settlement of upstate New York from 1602 through 1800. The focus is on the American Revolution, which covers roughly half of the 400 pages of content. However, it also spends a great deal of time on the colonial era and events leading up to the War for Independence. The author of the book, Halsey, was actually born in Unadilla and came from a family that settled in New York in the early 17th century. He worked as an editor for the New York Times in the late 1800s, as well as other newspapers and book publishers. He authored a number of books, most of which involved the regional history of upstate New York. As always, I've included links to this ebook, The Old New York Frontier, on both my website and blog. Check it out at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.
What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.